Well, good morning. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 19. It is a, always an honor to have the opportunity to share the word. And uh, even in this unique setting, in this unique way, uh, it is still an honor. As a child who grew up in the 70s, I have a distinct and fond memory of my Sunday school classes and children's church classes. Even though you wouldn't describe the teaching aids as high tech, uh, they got the job done. I loved the thick colored paper that we used for every craft. Uh, It was simply amazing that you could accurately replicate anything from either of the testaments with popsicle sticks and yarn. I can still smell the paste that we use to stick things together. And it smelled much better than it tasted. I would ask you not to judge me. I was four. I remember the green colored left-handed dull scissors that I was not allowed to use because I was born with the disability of being right-handed. But the teaching aid that I remembered the most The one that I anticipated each and every week was the flannel graph. Uh, Oh, how it made biblical narratives come to life to a small four-year-old. How they took something that happened thousands of years ago and etched it into my mind and heart. Each Sunday, I would, with bated breath, sit in the front row and eagerly await which pictures they were going to pull out and put on that board. The people, the, the, the places, the, the, the animals, all of these things. It, it had my attention. It was the best. There are two stories that I love the most, however, especially because of the visual aids of the flannel graph. The first, obviously, was David and Goliath. Who could not love the story of David and Goliath on a flannel graph? A small little David character, a figure with only a sling and a few stones. Right next to Goliath, this huge giant with a spear in his hand. On one side of the flannel board, there was the arrogant and confident Philistine army. And on the other side, there was the fearful and shameful Jewish army. It's as if if I close my eyes right now, I can still see the flannel graph. I can still see David. I can still see Goliath. The second story was that of Zacchaeus. What's interesting about the story of Zacchaeus is there's not a lot of action. I mean, David and Goliath, there's action there. Not a lot of action in that one. But maybe it was because I was always the smallest kid in the Sunday school class. That that had a, you know, Zacchaeus is one of my type of people. (laughs) Short. Or maybe it was that giant sycamore tree that they would put on the flannel graph and place that little old man Zacchaeus on the branches. It could have been the sneering and disapproving faces of the crowd as a response to Jesus engaging with Zacchaeus and saying, come down, I'm going to be spending lunch with you today. Or it could have been The picture of Zacchaeus giving back to those that he had cheated, those that he had defrauded. But whatever the case is, it always gripped me. It always was one of my favorite stories. I loved the Zacchaeus story. And while I don't have a flannel graph for you today, that is the story that we are going to look at. Uh, I'm not randomly selecting this text this morning because of my affinity for flannel graphs. 
an especially accurate depiction of this story. I chose this particular narrative for us to study because it does speak to the specific season we are in. And it answers the question, why did Jesus tabernacle amongst us? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Why the prophecies? Why the angels? Why the virgin birth? Why the shepherds? Why the wise men? What was the reason for this baby to come and live amongst us? It's good to marvel at God's miraculous power as he orchestrates the coming of this child. It's good for us to wonder how he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament and the coming of the Messiah. And it's good for us to heed the encouragement from Pastor John last week to proclaim and ponder and praise God for all that he has done for us. But we cannot, nor should we ever, experience the Christmas season without the meditation for God's purpose for it all. Jesus tells us with absolute clarity and concisiveness in verse 10 of our chapter, in in Luke chapter 19, that the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. We have all heard the phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season. But for us to grasp that completely, we need to ask, what was Jesus' reason for coming? In the text before us, I want us to look at the universal answer to that question. We'll see that in verse 10. And then I want us to see how that played itself out in the life of one individual in verses 1 through 9. So that we will proclaim Jesus to the world so that we will ponder the significance of this truth in our own hearts, and so that we will praise God for his gracious and merciful treatment of undeserving sinners. So our outline this morning is relatively simple. Number one, we see the reason for Jesus' incarnation. And number two, we see a specific illustration of that reason. So let's read the text together. Luke 19, verse 1, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let's pray. Father, thank you for recording this narrative. This narrative is amazing because of what verse tells us that you came to seek and save the lost. Lord, we are all lost. We have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We all deserve the wages of sin. And to see a story like this, 
a man who was a sinner like us and you saved him. You sought him out and saved him. Father, may it stir in our hearts an appreciation for what you've given to us. May it stir in our hearts a passion to share this story, to share the love of God found in the sending of his son for the lost of this world so that they can experience the same forgiveness, the same salvation. Lord, may your Holy Spirit teach us as we study your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So the first point of our message this morning is the reason for Jesus' incarnation. Our narrative this morning is one that created quite a stir with the eyewitnesses of this event. We see that in our passage. It also would have stirred uh, within those that were readers of Luke's letter to Theophilus. This is shocking that this individual was saved. Zacchaeus' salvation created confusion both concerning why Christ sought out Zacchaeus and how someone like him could be saved. And so the Spirit inspired Luke to record the words in verses 9 and 10 of Jesus that helped Zacchaeus and the eyewitnesses and those of us that would hear the story later understand. Verse 9 makes it abundantly clear that this man was saved because of his interaction with Christ. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. In other words, he's saying, Zacchaeus, today you got saved. Today your sins are forgiven. Today you are part of the family of God. Today you have eternal life and you and I will spend eternity together. And if they were confused as to the how and why in verse 10, he reminds them of who he was and why he came in verse, or uh, confused about verse 9, who he was and why he came in verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. The first part of this verse speaks to who Jesus is, and the last part speaks to why he came. At the beginning of verse 10, Jesus refers to himself in the third person. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This title was the most frequently used designation that Jesus used to describe himself. As he's describing himself to the people, to his disciples, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Of the 88 uses of this title in the New Testament, 87 were used by Jesus referring to himself. The only other use of this referring back to Jesus is Stephen in his message before he was murdered. This designation of Christ focused on what John communicated in the first chapter of that gospel. Chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus said, And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He saw, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This title of Jesus points us to the perfect humanity of Christ. When Jesus is referring to this title, he is focused, he is pointing out his humanity. That God himself tabernacled amongst us. That he lived as a man because Jesus was fully man. That God himself emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, as Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. As Jeff mentioned in his prayer, he was born like all humanity. 
He grew and developed physically and cognitively just like you and I. He had physical limitations like we do. He felt tired. He felt hungry. He needed to sleep. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. So as Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man, he is speaking to those around him and explaining his humanity. But to the Jews, it referenced something even more. The son of man focused on and they understood it to be about the Messiah that they were anticipating. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel sees a vision and he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. It speaks both of his humanity, but it also speaks of his exalted state as Messiah, as Christ, as King. This son of man that Daniel sees was unlike any and all humanity before him and after him. For this son of man was the son of man, God himself, the second person of the Trinity. In John chapter one, verse one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This son of man title has the double meaning of human being. And according to Daniel seven, highly exalted heavenly one speaks of Jesus being a hundred percent God. And at the same time, a hundred percent man, the word was God. But he became flesh and in doing so became the epitome of what humanity was to be the perfect and absolute example of all that God desired man to be the perfect image bearer of God. Unlike our spiritual father, Adam, who was created an image bearer. But in chapter three of Genesis, we see that that image was Destroyed. Jesus, the perfect embodiment of grace and truth. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 9, all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. He lived a perfect, righteous life, perfectly loving, perfectly worshiping, perfectly obeying God in thought and word and deed. And Jesus told Zacchaeus that he was this man, the son of man, and that he came for a specific reason to accomplish something. We see that at the end of verse 10, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The Jews had many ideas as to why the Messiah would come, but their main understanding was for the deliverance of the Roman oppression. And while Christ will come again and establish his kingdom, his first coming was to save mankind from their sin. Old Testament passages like Isaiah 53 and verses five and six says, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verses 11 and 12 of Isaiah 53. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. The reason for the birth of the Messiah, the son of man, was to save the lost. We see that in the Old Testament. But just looking through the narratives of this Christmas story, it is clear that this was the purpose of the Messiah as prophesied by the angels. Two passages, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, as the the angel is speaking to Joseph. But when he, Joseph, had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And think about the passage that pastor quoted to us earlier. Luke 2, chapter 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So we have the Old Testament looking forward. We have the uh, angels describing the present. And then we have the rest of the New Testament looking back at the incarnation. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And then John in his first epistle, 1 John 3, verse 5, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus declared to Zacchaeus that he was the son of man, the God man who came to seek and to save the lost. And by referring to himself as the son of man, he was communicating what would be more clearly explained as the New Testament was written. That he was the only one who could save the lost because he was the only perfect substitute for sinful man. Jesus came as the son of man so that he could become the perfect lamb of God and take away the sins of man. Zacchaeus and all of humanity, including each one of us, needs a substitute. But not just any substitute will do. We need a substitute who was tempted as we are yet without sin. We need a substitute who perfectly glorified God in all of his thoughts in all of his attitudes, in all of his speech, in all of his actions, so that when he took the wrath of God upon himself, it was not for any sin that the substitute had committed. And when we receive the righteousness of that substitute, we receive a full righteousness, a righteousness that was perfect before the law. 2 Corinthians 5 Verse 21 says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
This title of son of man points us to Christ's conception of himself as the one who came down from heaven with all the glory of deity, while at the same time, one who demonstrated humility and endured suffering for the salvation of men. Jesus used this term to refer to his mission and his purpose. Listen to what Jesus says in chapter three of the book of John in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God's intention from eternity past was to bring salvation to mankind through the birth of this child in Bethlehem. It was not some mix up, some mid game adjustment to what was going on on the planet. No, Jesus was sent into the world as a man for the purpose to bring salvation to the lost. And as we look at this title in verse 10, this amazing title of Jesus and the declaration of his purpose was communicated within the context of an interaction Jesus was having with a real person. And this narrative demonstrates to us our second point, a, a specific fulfillment or a specific illustration of that purpose. This story of the salvation of Zacchaeus reveals the very heart of Christ as he pursues a sinful man, as he draws him into a personal relationship with himself, and in so doing changes this man's life forever. In the story of Zacchaeus, we have the picture of him seeking and saving the lost. Now let's jump back to the front of the top, the beginning of this chapter in verse one. We're told that Jesus was entering Jericho. Now, this travel law cannot be ignored by us, nor can the timing of this encounter with Zacchaeus. Jericho is only about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. And for those traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, this would have been the last stop. This is kind of that last travel stop as you're traveling from one place to another. People are stopping in Jericho. The town would have been bustling with the travelers as folks were headed to Jerusalem for Passover. And that's why Jesus is here. He's heading to Jerusalem for Passover. This story happens as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. We are only 17 verses from Jesus' triumphal entry and only a couple of weeks before his death. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to fulfill his earthly purpose. This, his time had come for him to drink the cup of God's wrath intended for sinful man. And that is where he's headed. And his mind and heart are focused on accomplishing this work to complete the necessary work for his saving ministry. So that's why he's in Jericho, busy, lots of people. Verses two and three, we are introduced to Zacchaeus, a specific lost individual that Jesus came to seek and save. We're told three things about him. Number one, he was a chief tax collector. Number two, he was rich. And number three, he was short in stature. 
The first two facts inform us of his sinfulness. And the third set, or the third uh, sets us up for the actions of verse four. If you would have asked the Jewish people of that day, what was the most lost? What's the most sinful person you would know? They would direct you to a man like Zacchaeus. And the people of Jericho would have directed you to Zacchaeus. We can see that specifically if you look at verse 7. When they saw it, it being Jesus is in an interaction with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus comes down from the tree. They start heading over to Zacchaeus' home. It says, when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And the people viewed Zacchaeus as a sinner because that's exactly what he was. A tax collector of that day would not simply be collecting income for the government, but you would be collecting income from a wicked government that had overtaken your country and was diametrically opposed to all that you held dear. You were a traitor to your own people and you were an ally to those that made it difficult to live a life peacefully and a life religiously. He was a traitor to his people and in essence, he was a traitor to his faith. Add to that the way the tax collector worked in those days. Not only would they collect the taxes that were required to present to Rome, but you could add any amount you thought you could get away with for yourself. And if they refused to pay, you simply told Rome that they weren't paying their taxes and you had Rome's sword to support you. So he is not only playing for the enemy, but he's defrauding his own people. We're also told that he was a chief tax collector. He was at the top of the food chain. He extorted money from the people uh, of, of, of Jericho. And then he took a percentage of all the other collections that were coming from the other tax collectors in Jericho. The younger, less experienced one. There's this pyramid scheme and he is receiving percentages. And this is what led him to being rich. Verse 8 gives us a taste of just how rich Zacchaeus was. Uh, in his declaration of his repentance, just listen to this. It says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will, I will give it back four times as much. So at the top, he gives away 50% of his assets and he still has enough money to give back to those he's defrauded times four. He had acquired a great amount of wealth on the backs of other people. Zacchaeus's name meant the exact thing he was not. The word Zacchaeus means pure and innocent. <laughs> so not only was he a traitor, but he was a defrauder. An extortionist acquiring income on the backs of his people through a pyramid scheme. The narrative tells us in verse 4 that Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, so he ran ahead and climbed a tree for a better look. You're thinking of that sycamore tree on the flannel board, aren't you? I am, right now. It says he was short, so he could not see over the crowd, so he climbs a tree for a better look. What's interesting in this narrative is we're not told why he wanted to see Jesus. Was it because he had heard the stories of this miracle worker? I'm not sure. 
Was it because he thought that there might be a way to make money off his celebrity? I'm kind of leaning that way because of who Zacchaeus was. Or was it because of the guilt over his sin? Did he know enough about Jesus? Had he had heard some of the stories about Jesus? Again, we're not told, but we are told that Jesus sought out this traitor. This one who was funding the enemy, this one who was stealing from his own people and opposed to the God of the Jews. What makes the story so, so rich is that we are all guilty before a holy God. All of us have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But many have not turned to him for salvation because we believe our sin is too great It's too wicked. We have walked too far from him. But that's why this story has, it resonates so well with us. Zacchaeus is the epitome of a sinner. Yet Christ, as he's walking through Jericho, looks up at the tree, sees Zacchaeus, knows Zacchaeus and says, hurry, come down. I am going to sup with you today. The story of Zacchaeus is a real story. It was recording a actual event, but it is the illustration of the declaration of verse 10. The son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. As we conclude our time together uh, in this story, I want us to see how one receives this gift of salvation that Christ has come to offer. The child was born 2,000 years ago. The child came to seek and save the lost, but salvation comes to some, but not to all. All deserve the wages of our sin, but only some are forgiven and receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ. We as believers rejoice in his coming because his arrival led to our salvation. His life and death were events that actually happened, but the result of that sacrifice only applies to those who believe. And we see this faith response in Zacchaeus. Look at verse nine. Jesus tells us of Zacchaeus faith. It says, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. What a confusing phrase for us. So he was saved because he was related to Abraham. He was saved because he was a Jew. Well, Zacchaeus was a a physical descendant of Abraham, but it nonetheless left him awaiting God's wrath just minutes before this interaction with Christ. So it it can't be that. that. That can't be what it's explaining to us, that he saved because he was a a physically connected to Abraham. Throughout the New Testament, we see that being physical descendants of Abraham, although culturally important, counts nothing for eternity. When John the Baptist was preaching to the Jews, he warned, do not think you can say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, as a, as a way of, of, of resting in where they are spiritually. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. John's point was there's more important things than physical lineage for your spiritual condition. But Paul helps us understand what's being said here in Galatians 3 in verses 6 through 9. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. So that those who rely on faith are blessed among those with Abraham, a man of faith. To be a son of someone is to have someone's personal traits. To be a son of Abraham is to display a character quality of Abraham, namely, in this particular case, his faith. Everyone who evidences faith is showing himself to be like their spiritual father, Abraham. Abraham had faith and so did Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus believed in Jesus and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Zacchaeus' faith is manifest in a few ways in our text, and we'll go through them quickly. We see in verses 5 and 6 that he understood who, God, who Jesus was as his Lord, and he obeyed. Jesus said, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. I love the way that Luke pens this. Luke record, uh, records, he hurried down and received him. Hurry down, and Luke says, he hurried down, immediately obeying Zacchaeus' understanding of Christ quickly moved from him being a, 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 a novelty act, a miracle worker, a, a reason he could acquire income, to in verse 8, he describes him as Lord, the one who has authority, the one who I am to obey because he is my creator. He demonstrated an understanding of who Christ was and obedience. In verse 8, we see that he confesses his sin. A more accurate English translation of the Greek conditional clause used by Luke in this verse would, instead of being, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, it can better be read, from whomever I have wrongfully exacted anything, I will give back four times. Look with me back one chapter to Luke 18 in verse 9. Many commentators believe that when Jesus taught this parable, he had his upcoming interaction with Zacchaeus on his mind. Verse 9 of 18, it says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Zacchaeus humbled himself and confessed his sin. He saw it as God saw it. The tax collector in, verse, in chapter 18 was justified because this confession and humility, or in other words, salvation had come to his house. So we have recognition of who God is and obedience. We have confession in verse nine. We have repentance. We have a changing of his life, turning 180 degrees. Instead of him taking from people selfishly, he is giving to the poor and he's making restitution for his sins. 
As we retell the story of the first Christmas, we must recognize the impetus of his coming, that he came to seek and to save the lost. And that leads us to a few questions to ponder, as Pastor John told us last week. Number one, have we responded to his coming with the same faith as Zacchaeus? Have we accepted Jesus as Savior? Have we confessed our sin? Have we repented of our sin and turned to obeying Christ and pursuing righteousness? Number two, are we proclaiming this amazing fact to those that are in our sphere of influence? He came to seek and save the lost. We are his children and we are a part of his mission. Are we proclaiming that purpose? Are we sharing this perfect substitute, this Lamb of God with those that we know? And three, are we worshiping God for his kindness? Are we recognizing that we are no different from Zacchaeus? We are just as sinful, just as selfish, just as uh, um, needing of wrath. And yet, because of his great love, we were made new. We were forgiven of our sins. We were adopted into his family. Does this manger lead us to praise and worship of God? May this year's Christmas lead us to proclaim. May it lead us to ponder and may it lead us to pray. Praise him. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this story, this narrative. Thank you for coming to save sinners like us. Father, there is no righteousness that grants us forgiveness. There is no uh, there is no action that we can do that will save us. We are sinners in our heart, which lead to sin in our life. But Lord, you sent this perfect substitute, the Son of Man, to fulfill the purpose of humanity. And he took on our sin. Father, we are so thankful for that. Lord, may we proclaim this, may we ponder this, and may we praise you for all that you've done. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.